Good morning, friends. I uh, enjoyed the time of song singing, prayer, scripture reading that we just experienced. Uh, I, I have a, a unique perspective that, that none of you have um, because I have prepared the sermon for today and the songs and scriptures that have been read and prayed and so forth um, uh, are intended to support and uh, emphasize points of the sermon. And so I'm sitting here during this whole preliminary time of our worship, um, just noticing how great these things relate to what God has said and done in his word. And so I'm hoping to transfer to you at this time the message in such a way that, that would bring light and encouragement to what we've just done together in our worship. Uh, and we're going to do so by looking at Mark chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Mark 8, and we're going to be focusing on verses 34 through 38. Mark 8, 34 through 38. Let me read these words for you. These came from Jesus. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what command what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so these words this morning are epic words of Christ. These words are important for you to grasp, understand, because these words describe the life of discipleship. These were described the life of those who claim to be followers of Christ. So if you claim here this morning that you are a follower of Christ, then the things that Jesus said about those who follow Christ ought to be true of you, right? This is, this is the important nature of these words here. And as you heard earlier that Chris read for you from Luke, Matthew repeats the same thing. So in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these, ver these words of Christ are recorded for our encouragement, benefit, and challenge. And this morning, we get the chance to unpack these things with the Holy Spirit's help and hopefully see what Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father would have for us. I have two points from this text I'm going to make. There's three in your bulletin, but the third are just examples from uh, text, one ancient and one modern that help you understand a little bit of, of the words that Jesus is saying. But the first, the first point here that, that I want to, to speak to you about is really a repetition of last week's sermon. But it's so critical to understand the context here, I'm going to repeat them for you, okay? And I'm calling it the framework of true discipleship. And it's found in verse 34. The framework of true discipleship. And I want you to think of this framework as a three-legged stool. And you know, if you've seen three-legged stools or for sat on a three-legged stool, if someone removed one of those legs, you'd be in trouble, right? It's harder to sit on a two-legged stool than a three-legged stool, and even more difficult to sit on a one-legged stool. Uh, you're taking your life in your hands when you sit on a one-legged stool. I guess they have them, though. The old cow milkers used to sit on a one-legged stool, but uh, that's not the best uh, comfortable arrangement for sitting. And so here we have in this text a three-legged true discipleship stool that requires all three legs in order to work. So this is the framework of true discipleship. And the first is, as we saw last week, denying self, self-denial. This is what he says in verse 34. Uh, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when he's describing what it means to be a true disciple. Self-denial. This is what he means. Mark used the Greek word here for deny or denial that's pretty strong. And it simply means to have no association with oneself. To disown oneself. 
From this day forward, I disown myself. I'm going to have nothing more to do with me. Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? And it might be, except that Jesus said this is how our attitude ought to be. We should have no more to do with self if we're going to be true disciples, if we're going to deny ourselves. This is what he meant, to disown self and prefer Christ in everything in life. Think of every area of your life, your, your job, your home, your school, your neighborhood. All are to be viewed through the lens of Christ. How would this be, how would this life be if it were 100% totally given over to Christ my Savior in my home, in my work, or whatever? That's what Jesus meant. So this, this means that we are not only to leave selfish priorities in all these areas of life, but we are to abandon, and, and this is critical that you hear me, that we abandon all attempts at self-righteousness, doing what we can to win the favor of the God of heaven, as if we could. We, we are to no more try to impress God and earn his favor. In fact, what we're to do from this point on by denying self is leaning fully on Christ. Not partially on Christ and partially on my own good works and my efforts, no, fully on Christ. Denying all of self, including the pursuit of personal pleasure and earning favor with God. If you think about it, this is a real positive side of denying self. It remu this idea of not pursuing self-righteousness removes a huge burden that none of us can carry anyway. Can we? We cannot impress God enough to earn his favor. There's nothing you can do to do such things. And it, of course, throws grace and mercy completely out the window if you try. Um, but that's pretty hard for most people to, to approach life this way, to lean fully on Christ, to, to deny self in such a way as you walk away from your self-effort to impress God. Um, because we are the kind of people, especially as Westerners, that want to be able to say we earned it or I deserve it, I'm worthy of it. And so this is not, not just a, a real positive side of denying self, it's a real difficult side of denying self, isn't it? Because we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of the grace and mercy of God. If we were, it wouldn't be grace and mercy. But there is one more challenging side to denying, to denying self besides not pursuing self-righteousness, and that is to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord, but is he your Lord? Is he your boss, or are you still running the agenda? That's also in view here with Jesus' words of denying self. It means to walk away from you as the boss. You're, you're no longer the boss of your life. If you're in Christ, if you're a true disciple, he's the boss. He's in charge. He gets to call the shots. It's our part simply to obey. That's what self-denial means. It's walking away from the self. Secondly, Jesus says to take up your cross. This is the second leg of the stool, taking up your cross. And of course, bearing a cross in Jesus' day only meant one thing, right? And what was that? Death. It's not, in Jesus' day, the cross didn't, wasn't a, a cute little trinket that people wore on a necklace. No, the, the cross had only one meaning in Jesus' day, and it was horrible death is what the cross meant. So it meant death and nothing more than death. Jesus was just saying that if you're going to be his disciple, you must die to selfish desires and to your own agenda. And if this sounds similar to his, his first leg on this discipleship stool of denying self, it's very similar because it's really just Jesus digging down deeper into the same hole. He wants you to make sure you understand exactly what he's saying here. To us, death is the end of life, right? It's the final experience we will all have. So Jesus' use of this instrument of death is really just a metaphor. It's a metaphor for our willingness to pay any price, and in fact, the ultimate price, for our allegiance to him. Are you willing to do that? Can you say, I will pay the ultimate price for my allegiance to him? And sometimes you'll never know the answer to that until you face that decision. Who knows? I think every martyr probably experienced that, that 
intention in the moment? Do I truly believe in all that I said? I have believed my whole life to the point of actually going to the guillotine, going to the stake, whatever. So this is what Jesus is after. He goes, deny self and die to self. Same hole, just a little deeper. And then he says, and follow me. There's the third leg to the stool. Three legs, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. One stool, one point that Jesus is making. I must be your all. I must be everything to you. You are now mine. I possess you. This is the same conversation. Just following, saying follow me is just a, a summary of the whole thing. It means a complete and unwavering loyalty to Christ. This is what a true disciple is. He's loyal to Christ and everything that means. It's a non-negotiable of true discipleship. In fact, loyal obedience is the litmus test of true discipleship. You can tell whether or not you're a true disciple, whether you are a follower of Christ by simply looking at your life. You know, get back a bit, see a bird's eye view of your own life, and are you an obedient person to Christ? Do you, do you obey the commands of God? You, you can't be a Christian and willingly ignore or disobey God in any area of your life. This is what the Apostle John said about the matter. He was in the audience when Jesus said what he said here in Mark 8. He knows what Jesus meant, and this is what John did in his first epistle. This is how he applied this truth. He said this in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Do you want to know if you know Jesus? If we keep his commandments. That's simple enough, isn't it? I mean, not keeping his commandments, but knowing whether you do. Okay, if we simply keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And you thought I was harsh. This is the Apostle John. You're a liar if you say such things, and there's no truth in you. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. How do we measure up? How do you measure up? How did this morning go? Forget the last six years of your life. Your life. How did this morning go in these things? It's important to understand before I get off this last leg of the stool that these three legs, that this stool of self-denial, cross-bearing, and obedience are not meritorious things we work for. They're not things that if you do enough of them, God will be pleased with you and then you'll be in heaven someday because look how hard you've worked. No, no, these things are the result of God already doing a work in our hearts. If God has in fact done these things in your heart, these things will be evident. That's what Jesus is saying. This isn't some list of things you must accomplish before you make it past the line to heaven. No, we've been changed and since we've been changed, these things are evidence of that change. We start loving Jesus more and more the longer we live. We start loving those who love Jesus more and more the longer we live. We start loving Jesus' kingdom and his priorities more and more the longer we live. This is called transformation. It's called sanctification in some places in scripture. So the three legs of the true discipleship become an eager pursuit of all those who have been converted by the Holy Spirit. This is just evidence of the fact that you truly know Christ. But since this is uh, somewhat uh, obscure, what it means to deny self, even though I've tried to explain it to you, and take up a cross is a little more obscure, uh, and following Jesus can mean whatever you think it means, right? It might be for you wearing a what would Jesus do wristband. But is that what Jesus meant? Well, because he didn't want us to misunderstand this epic teaching, this life-altering teaching, he explains it here in the text. He explains to you and me what really true discipleship looks like. So think about the words here in Mark 8. 
Remember what was just read to you from Luke 9 and 14, and, and Matthew also, all three synoptics record this from Jesus' mouth. Uh, and consider how shocking it is for Jesus to say these things are required of us. Not encouraged, required of all who say they follow Jesus. Many uh, humans who hear these kind of things, even well-meaning ones, chalk this up to hyperbole. Jesus was trying to get our attention, trying to shake us, trying to scare us, kind of like the way Adam tried to scare Eve in the garden. Don't even get near the tree. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing here, just to kind of keep us closer to Christianity. Well, I think it's important that we actually grasp the emphasis, the true emphasis that Jesus had in mind in making these statements and realize that he wasn't using hyperbole, uh, but laying out the only path that leads to salvation, the only path that following Jesus actually takes. There is no other path to following Jesus. There's only one, and this is it. This is what Jesus is saying. There's only one way to follow me, and this is it. There are plenty who try to take an alternate path. We know of them. There may be uh, some of us in this room who are still attempting these things. In this category, we have people who might think that they will uh, take the offer of salvation without the requirement of his lordship. You know, Jesus is Savior and Lord. Well, I'll take the Savior part, leave the Lord for later. You know, I want to get a little older, get a little serious, get a little less mobile, then I'll make him my Lord, right? Be easier then. I mean, for after all, what can old people do, right? That's what we think. I'll be, he'll be Lord of my life then. Well, um, Jesus didn't give that option here. He's very clear on his point. So, so I want to show you Jesus' explanation of true discipleship in case you like some of those who first heard this explanation of true discipleship, may have thought it was an exaggeration, may have misunderstood exactly what Jesus meant. So let's look at the cost of discipleship here by way of explaining true discipleship. Look at verses 35 through 37 again in your own copy. I'm going to read them for you, and I want you to look at the detail because the detail is important here. Verse 35 through 37, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So saving life means losing life and losing life means saving life. And then verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul or exchange for his soul? The least thing the most obvious thing that we can come away with here from these few verses is that following Jesus is costly, right? <laughs> you can't miss that. You can't misunderstand that. Jesus makes sure of it here in these two <laughs> verses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a famous German who lost his life under the Third Reich regime, um, said this. He, he wrote a, a classic um, book well worth reading called The Cost of Discipleship. And this is what he said. It's a powerful book, by the way. But listen here to Bonhoeffer's words. The cross is laid on every Christian. Key to listen closely. Every Christian, not just the serious ones, not just the miss missionaries and pastors. No, every Christian. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon this discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the invitation. Have you heard that recently in an evangelistic crusade? Hey, anybody interested, come up front and die. No, 
You don't hear those things in evangelism. Why? Because that doesn't get a crowd. <laughs> this, but but it's, it's is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man, you remember that, was a calling him to die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all of our affections and lusts, but we do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. They go together, in other words. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. You'll see this. Jesus unfolds it for us here. The potential of losing your life, to me, sounds a bit risky and unattractive. What did Jesus mean by saving one's life? What do you mean, saving one's life? I, I thought saving life was a good thing. What did Jesus mean by saving one's life, and what did he mean by losing one's life? Let's, let's unpack that a bit. What Jesus meant when he said saving one's life was the life lived for self, the life lived for here and now, with no consideration of the future, no consideration of the work of Christ or the person of Christ, the life lived for me, the life lived for pleasure, for leisure, for ease. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said saving one's life. This is the person that treasures comfort and treasures the distractions the world is offering above Christ. So the question we must ask ourselves is, do I treasure safe and comfortable life? Do I treasure it more than Christ? Do I prioritize ease and leisure to the point where I don't get close to risking anything for Christ or his cause? Well, see, you need to know, because I, I know that we all tend to legalism in these matters, you need to know that neither ease nor leisure, nor comfort, nor safety are wrong. Are they? <laughs> Those are good things. Those are good things. In fact, they're given to us as gifts from God. It's the prioritizing of those things that Jesus has in view, that Jesus wants to dissuade us from. He doesn't want us living our life for these things alone, period. If we're going to deny self by making Jesus our boss, be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and the new life he gives us and to loyally obey his commands and desires throughout life, we cannot prioritize comfort, ease, and leisure. If they happen, fine, but they cannot be our sole pursuit in life. If they are, you're not a true disciple. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Bonhoeffer said. This is what the Apostle John said that we've all heard from this morning. We can certainly enjoy comfort and ease when God sees fit to provide those things. We can enjoy a round of golf, a new car, a camping trip, a vacation to a nice place, but they cannot be the focus and goal of our existence. If we're going to be true disciples, our lives can't be defined by temporal, temporary things, material things. Our, our focus must be on Jesus Christ and his purposes if we're gonna be true disciples. So is your life about treasuring these worldly things, these good things that the world pursues? Or is it about making much of Jesus? Let's examine our lives honestly here. In, in, in the quietness of your own mind, examine your life. If we could shoot it on the overhead for all to see, what would it look like? What would really be the defining element of your life? Is it the pursuit of a comfortable retirement? Better vacations? Better things? Or is Jesus Christ first and foremost? Is his agenda the first thing on the list that we read about your life on the overhead? This leads us to Jesus' using an untenable possibility 
as by way of explaining this more clearly, an untenable possibility. Verses 36 and 37, he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can man give in exchange for his soul? Hold on, you mean it's one or the other? Exactly, it's exactly what it is. This is an untenable possibility to lose your own soul for eternity? No thank you, every one of us would say, right? No one would say, oh yeah, I'll exchange my soul for a few years of pleasure and ease. But we do it every day, don't we? We make that exchange. Even as Christians, calling ourselves disciples of Jesus. So what's happening here? See, Jesus wants us to think about the comparison of the temporary with the eternal. He wants us to focus on this, this conflict, this tension. The temporary or the eternal, which will I choose? Paul wants us to think about the same thing. In numerous places in his epistles, he brings it up. One of the more clear places in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this in verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's the comparison word. Now versus forever, the immediate versus the eternal. This, this difficult momentary affliction that Christ is calling us to is momentary, is affliction, but compared to eternity, it's nothing, Paul said, Jesus said. <laughs> All great saints have said. For the things that are seen, that is what we see around us, material things, are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Which will you choose? And by the way, you make this choice every day. Did you know that? You made it this morning before you got here. You may, making it, you may be making it right now. You'll make it again tomorrow and the next day. It's a choice that comes to our focus every single day. It's an ongoing choice. It's a choice that sometimes we fail at for different reasons. But true disciples can see this comparison quickly. The true disciples, at least most of the time, gravitate towards a decision-making that keeps eternal things in view. And I say most of the times, not always, but most of the times. Sometimes we get distracted or tired or selfish or fill in the blank and have a temporary case of wrong perspective or a temporary case of wrong priorities or spiritual blindness. But if you're a true disciple, most of the time you'll make a decision that reflects an eternal perspective. Someone who habitually has the wrong priorities or the wrong perspective are those who reject the true identity of Christ. Dennis mentioned this earlier in our service. The identity of Christ, truly believing that Jesus is the God of heaven, has got to change your daily perspective. Right? <laughs> it has to. These are the ones who Jesus is referring to in verse 38. They essentially are ashamed of Christ. They don't, truly don't believe he's God. They're ashamed of him. And if they are, how severe is the judgment going to be on that? Verse 38 is clear. Now let's move finally to some examples of true discipleship. Jesus didn't, didn't mention these examples in uh, his lesson here in Mark 8 and Luke 9 and 14. But the words of Christ recorded here in these places, especially today in Mark 8, uh, are not the only words of Christ. You know that the, the words of Christ are recorded in Genesis, right? The spirit of the living God was the one who inspired Moses to write what he wrote. And so we're, I'm gonna take you to an ancient example, the example of Abraham. And then I'm gonna take you to a more contemporary example, 
that I'll mention here in a minute. And I think it's always helpful to have examples to follow. To be able to look at someone do something always makes it easier to do it yourself. I'm kind of a mechanically oriented person. If I can see someone do something, I can generally, you know, get it done. Uh, DIY projects, for example, you go to YouTube and you're a carpenter. Or you're a painter after 15 minutes of YouTube watching. I thought I was a carpenter, a floor installer, um, watching YouTube videos about five years ago and then cut my thumb off trying it. It was a really exciting moment for me. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm a pretty mechanical guy and if I watch something I can learn it. And I think a lot of us are like that, which is why the scriptures are written, right? This is what Paul said to us. These things are written for your benefit, which is why we have the story of Abraham in Genesis, so that we'll benefit. This is the ancient example, Abraham. The example of true discipleship, the example of what it means to follow Jesus, in Abraham's case, even before Jesus existed on earth. Of course, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has always existed, but in his earthly body, he was born 2,000 years after Abraham. But Abraham gives us a, a, a beautiful picture of what it means to be a true disciple. Starting with Adam and Eve, when they first sinned in the garden, mankind has become a very self-consumed person. Would you agree that, for the most part, we're selfish people? I think we are. Yeah, it's, it's true of all of us. Uh, we have all inherited this from our first parents, even the best of us, including Abraham. He's one of the best, and he was a selfish person. One of the first words that Abraham learned in his language is the same word that every person learns in their language, and it's this in English, mine. Besides mama or dada, those thrilling words for every parent, uh, what is the first word your child learns and uses regularly? It's this one, isn't it? Mine. This is divine proof that we have a fallen sin nature. We are born selfish. Right? <laughs> yes. And this is exactly what God wants to rid us of, what God wanted to rid Abraham of, that God wants to rid you and me of. This is what being transformed into the image of Christ is all about. It's what discipleship is about. It's what sanctification is about. So the more we live a life of discipleship, the less we'll use this word, mine, hopefully. A.W. Tozer wrote in his great book, The Pursuit of God, the following, the way to deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and abnegation of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing, all sense of mine. This, of course, we know, if you've lived a day, is a long road, hard road, that every child of God must walk, right? This is where Abraham's example of true discipleship is especially helpful. Abraham was 75 years old, you know, you know the story, when God promised him a son, and we know that 75 years old is quite old to be bearing children. Uh, to top this off, God waited 25 years after the promise to fulfill the promise. So Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, when the promised son Isaac was born. And if you didn't know, that falls into the category of the miraculous, right? That, in fact, is why God waited until they were the age they were before he gave them Isaac to prove to them that this was, in fact, the miracle promised son. It wasn't by chance that these things happened. You know, it was actually a miracle of God's goodness and grace fulfilling the promise he had made to them. And as you can imagine, 
if you put yourself in Abraham or Sarah's shoes, that this promised son Isaac was precious to them. Precious to them. Um, he was everything in their eyes. In fact, to the point where he had become an idol to them. And once Isaac replaced the place in their hearts that only God should occupy, God stepped in and because of the grave danger it posed to their spiritual life, to their eternal life, God dealt with it. Like he will deal with each and every one who is a true disciple. Genesis 22 records the climax of this story. God said this in verse 2 of Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son. Listen to how God piles on here. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Okay, I got it, God. This really important special, special son, I got it. Take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Imagine hearing that if you're Abraham and Sarah. We don't know if Sarah heard it. I'm assuming Abraham told Sarah what he was doing, going to Moriah. But imagine hearing that. After waiting so long, after desiring so much for a son, hearing those words. God's saying, Abraham, we're going to get rid of that idol. And it's for your own good. See, we don't get to read the epic struggle that Abraham had that night or the questions he may have asked God about his crazy command or the deals that Abraham tried to cut with God that I would have tried. Okay, from now on, I'll serve in the nursery. Okay, I'll serve in the nursery. I'll even show up to small group occasionally. Uh, that would have been my line, my approach. We don't get to hear any of that. This command seems to be way beyond the pale. It seems even to me more radical than what Jesus is asking of us in Mark 8. So whatever happened between God and Abraham on that night before he left the next morning, we don't know, but Abraham got up, saddled a donkey with the wood, take, took his son Isaac and marched off to Moriah, which was a three-day trip. And by the way, and it's not so incidental, it's not incidental at all, they hiked off, God gave them directions to the exact place, exact location, Mount Moriah, where Jesus was sacrificed 2,000 years later. The exact location, gps That's where he died. That's where Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. Abraham didn't know how God had intended to fulfill his promise to make Abraham a great nation. But he did know God. He did know that God couldn't lie. He did know that God was good. Um, and I think it's pretty awesome to see that even though Abraham missed the method of Isaac's salvation, he correctly identified God's great and loving heart. He trusted God. Abraham didn't demand his own way. He didn't save his life, to use Jesus' words. Instead, he actually lost it that day in the giving up of his son, his most precious possession. He gained everything, didn't he? In the giving up of his life, he gained everything. He experienced Jesus' words firsthand. 2,000 years before Jesus said them. Abraham did not forfeit his soul in order to avoid discomfort. He denied himself. He took up his cross and he followed God obediently. And so this experience on Mount Moriah with Isaac gave Abraham a new, joyful, lasting, vibrant view of life and his own possessions as well. Even though Abraham was very wealthy, probably one of the wealthiest men on the planet at the time, Bill Gates category, he possessed nothing and he knew it. <laughs> Starting with Isaac, God transformed everything about Abraham's perspective. 
And Jesus wants each of us to learn the same lesson. The word, the word mine, A.W. Tozer said in chapter 2, probably never crossed Abraham's lips again. I understand that completely. The example of Abraham is sufficient, I think, but someone may be tempted to say, oh, Abraham is one of those mythical Bible characters that always did what God wanted. Of course he's written in the Bible. Of course. But a couple things. Number one, Abraham did not always do what God commanded. We remember the story, don't we, in Genesis? No, he had a few epic failures. I keep using that word epic this today. Great failures. Um, and he wasn't mythical. He was actually human. He walked this planet. His genealogy is found numerous places in Scripture. He was one of us. But he was a true disciple and placed in Scripture to be an example to you this morning. A more recent example, if you need it, um, was an American who lived in the past century, who died about 60 or 70 years ago. His name is Jim Elliott. And I relate to Jim Elliott on a few levels. I've spoken of him a few times. I, I have some of his sayings on the walls of my office. I, I have read many of his, well, a couple of his books and many books about him. This being my favorite, Shadow of the Almighty by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. And this was life transformative for me. But we use Jim Elliott, who's much more relatable to us, He's not some ancient, archaic hero of the faith that we can't even imagine. He's one of us. He's a contemporary American. <laughs> he knew American life like we know American life. So he's a good example, in case you don't think they exist. And like I said, I relate to Jim Elliott on a few levels. And one of my greatest uh, connections to him is that when I was a missionary kid, I grew up in the same country, in fact, in the same small indigenous village where Jim Elliott lived and served, Shelmetta, Ecuador. It's where my parents first went to serve. I was there, I arrived in 1962 as a two-year-old. Um, to my great consternation, I, I understand. Um, but my parents went to Ecuador because of the Jim Elliott and Nate Saint story. And they took us along, for which I'm grateful. So, one of Jim Elliott's most famous sayings is a rewrite of Jesus' words here in Mark 8. Look at verse 35 and 36 again, and then I'm going to read for you Jim Elliott's most famous saying. 35 and 36, for who Ever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now listen to Eliot's famous quote. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Same stool. <laughs> right? Sounds a lot like Bonhoeffer. Sounds a lot like Abraham. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John and all the great saints who have walked this planet. They all sound the same. Hmm. <laughs> Wonder about that. Listen to some of the other quotes <clears throat> from this record from Elizabeth Elliot. And by the way, she got this from just scanning over Jim Elliot's journals. <clears throat> And by the way, most of these were written in his late 20s. This, the first two here when he was 27. One treasure, a single eye, and a soul master. Can you say that? True disciple says that. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not only life, but a full one like you. I, don't, I, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. True disciple. Next, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, 
and consume it with thine enveloping fire. Maybe I should use the word thine more often instead of yours. Maybe that would be more impressive and memorable. But listen to this. Father, take my life, yea, my blood, thou wilt, and as thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Think about that. You know, you can't save your life. (laughs) It's not yours to save. It's his. It's not mine to save. Have it, Lord. That is my life. Have it all. Pour out my life as an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. Well, I'll, I'll close with this. Saturate me, Eliot said, with the oil of the Spirit, that I may be a flame. But flame is often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. There is so much, listen to me, there is so much by way of application to these great words of Christ. I, I, I could spend five sermons doing it. But I'm going to choose one and ask you to consider in your own time of meditation or conversation with your family uh, all the other possibilities of how to apply these words of Christ. But I'm just going to choose one, and that is the use of your time. How do you use your time? Again, get a bird's eye view. How do you use your time? Is it about the pursuit of mine? Or is it about the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom? Is it about making much of Jesus or making much of you? See, we we need to use our time to make much of Christ and his person and work. Remember, the Gospel of Mark, the Bible, really is divided in those two categories, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. First eight chapters of Mark, the person of Christ, who who is he, what's his identity? The last eight chapters, 9 through 16, the work of Christ. And the whole whole of Scripture is divided like that, the person and work of Christ. How much do you know about the person and work of Christ? If all of God's communication to us is based on the person and work of Christ, what do you know of it? Of him. And so when Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you intend to do so? By osmosis? Do you put the Bible under your pillow at night and pray diligently that God will change you? How do you intend to be more like Jesus, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's your plan? Well, God has given the church elders to study, interpret, and explain the scriptures to you. And so by you coming, this is the first evidence of your true discipleship. You're here, listening to the words of Christ being explained. The person of Christ, his work being revealed to you. And we as elders think that being here on Sunday morning in the church worship service is the first step, a massively important step that you must take to be a true disciple. But in addition to this, there must be more. Why? Because Christ is infinite. And the only way to get to know him is to saturate your heart and mind with him and his word. And I can only cover so much on Sunday mornings. I have 52 chances with you out of 365 days. I'm already at a disadvantage. So what do you fill the rest of your week up with? The use of your time. 
We have an idea for you as elders, and it's this, and it's not a big ask, it's a simple one. Commit one more hour besides the hour you commit for this meeting to our Sunday school hour. We call it Sunday seminars. This fall, we're gonna begin what we're calling the King's Institute. It's, a, it's something that's gonna require another hour Sunday morning and maybe an hour or so preparing for Sunday morning, the King's Institute. It's a way to make much of Christ in your own life. It's a way to, to consider the comparison between eternal and temporary. It's a consider to, to go in with Christ. Can you give another hour and a half, two maybe, for this eternally significant issue? In the lobby, I think there's a sign up, is there, for the King's Institute. This is one application of this massively important text. There are 100 others. I pray that the Holy Spirit will not let you forget anything I've said this morning until you've done business with God on this level. This is, this is it, folks. <laughs> we got nothing else to offer you. Either Christ is your all or he's not. We're praying diligently, passionately, that you will make that choice to make Christ your all. Pray with me. Father, in sending your son Jesus Christ into the world to be our savior, he brought with him the divine mind, the purposes of the kingdom of God, and revealed those things to us in his short ministry with us that's been recorded in the scriptures. There's so many important things that we've studied, that we've read, that the Holy Spirit has opened up to our mind but we're afraid that if we're left to ourselves, just like Abraham was and all great saints of human history, when left to self, failure follows. And so, Father, we, we beseech you, we, we seek you diligently not to leave us to ourselves. But in your grace and goodness, do for us what you did for Abraham, what you did for Jim Elliot, what you do for all true disciples. Reveal to us the importance of chasing Christ wholeheartedly, to making much of him daily. Father, do this for us, please, for our good and for your glory. Amen.